Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, The Conscience of the Christian. Amen. Well, by way of introduction today, I want to talk to you about a great historical figure in the opening part of our message. And that great historical figure, his name is Martin Luther. Now, not Martin Luther King Jr. He was a great man as well. No, I'm talking about way before Martin Luther King Jr., there was a man named Martin Luther who was a German Catholic priest and a professor of theology. And he lived from 1483 until 1546. So here you have Luther. He's an Augustinian monk in the Roman Catholic Church. And he begins to see growing corruption within his own church. And so we know, most of you know from history class or religious class in school that in 1517, Martin Luther uh, wrote his 95 theses, and um, according to to tradition, he nailed those theses on the the, uh, front doors of the church there in Wittenberg. And so what were the 95 theses? Well, it was basically a call for the church to reform itself, and it specifically called out the heretical practice of selling indulgences. It was actually taught by the church that if you gave money to the church, that you could shorten your loved one's time suffering in purgatory by giving to the church, that the ecclesiastical hierarchy would, would, um, would grant an indulgence to your loved ones in purgatory so they wouldn't have to suffer uh, so long. In Luther's words, and I quote, as soon as the penny jingles in the money box, the soul flies out of purgatory. And so he spoke out against this practice that, of course, the church was using to fund the building of St. Peter's Basilica there in Rome. But in order to fund that building project, they were teaching heresy, that we could actually give money to spring our loved ones out of purgatory. Give me a break, right? And so this caused an incredible stir within the Roman Catholic Church in that time. So much so that Pope Leo X declared Luther a heretic and he excommunicated him from the church. Luther's writings also caused a great stir throughout the, the entire Holy Roman Empire um, there in Europe. And so he was summoned to what's known as the Diet of Worms. Now, I didn't say they asked him to eat worms, okay? That's not what I said. They summoned him to the diet of worms. The word diet means assembly, and worms is a city in Germany. So it was a, a, an assembly on political and religious matters taking place in Worms, Germany, And it was such a big deal that the Holy Roman Emperor himself, Charles V, presided over this assembly. It took place in 1521. And during this assembly, they asked Luther to recant his words that he had spoken against the church. And even though he knew that he could be easily killed if he did not recant his teachings... This is what this man of God said at the Diet of Worms. Check it out. 
He says, unless I am convinced by, what's the next word? Scripture. That's where it's at. He says, unless I'm convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. And then he says, my, what's the next word? Conscience, right? We're talking about the conscience of the Christian. And Luther said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. Love that. He said, I cannot and I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. So Luther left the diet of worms. He was granted safe passage. But as soon as he left, the emperor, Charles V, issued an edict declaring Luther an outlaw in the Holy Roman Empire. And when someone When you were declared an outlaw, that meant that anybody, anywhere could kill you and they would not be punished. So thank God Luther was able to escape because he was protected by people who supported him like Prince Frederick of Saxonies and and others. And so he went into hiding. He went up into this castle. He was there for a long time. And while he was up in the castle, this incredible man of God who, by the way, didn't care about political correctness. He stood by the truth. And I I agree with what I'm hearing more and more in our culture. We have to get over political correctness and just speak the truth in love. We got to stop worrying about offending people all the time and just speak the truth in love. That's the only way change happens. This guy risks his life in order not to be politically correct, in order to speak the truth in love because change was desperately needed in his day. And so while he was up in that castle in hiding, he began to translate the Bible from Latin to German so that the common people in Germany could be able to read the word of God for themselves. And by the way, when the laity has the word of God in their possession, in their language. You know what often happens in history? Revival happens. Religion turns to a relationship with Jesus Christ and people become born again and they begin to live for the Lord. And that's what happened in his day. And so what happened, he went into hiding, he translates the Bible into German and eventually his influence leads to what is known as the Protestant Reformation. I love what he said. He said about halfway down there on your screen, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. Thank God that Martin Luther followed his conscience. Thank God that Martin Luther Put the word of God above the teachings of man. Otherwise, you and I in 2015 may still be giving money to spring our loved ones out of purgatory. By the way, you understand there's no purgatory, right? There's only two places that people go to when they die, heaven or hell. And both places are forever and there is no um, annihilation of the soul. Your soul is immortal, And your soul will live forever in one of two places, heaven or hell. 
If your soul has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, it will live forever in heaven, in the kingdom of God. But if you have rejected Jesus Christ and the salvation that he has provided on the cross, then you will die in your sins and you will spend eternity consciously in a place called hell. Why? Because God is cruel and he wants you to go there? No! God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The choice is yours. Hey, God is not willing that anybody should perish but that all should come to repentance. If anybody is in hell today, they're in hell because they rejected the witness of creation and they rejected the witness of the inner conscience that God gives to all men and they rejected the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ, his son. It's your choice. And so don't put it on God if you end up where you don't want to be in the afterlife. By the way, quick side note, there's a pretty good 2003 movie on Luther's life. If you go to amazon.com and type in Luther movie, you can get it for about 10 bucks. But he followed his conscience. What is the human conscience. We'll define it. One of the guys I read every week, I love him. He's very practical pastor and Bible commentator. His name is Warren Wearsby. He wrote this B series. And in his commentary, he defines what a conscience is. He says it's, quote, that internal court where our actions are judged and either approved or condemned that inner court inside of us where our actions are judged and either approved or condemned. So you have the human conscience. The human conscience is like a warning light inside of us, right? You're faced with a moral question in life, an ethical question in life. Are you going to do the right thing or the wrong thing? And so your conscience, if it's active, unless you've sinned against it and it's dull, your conscience begins to flash like a warning light in front of you. It happened to me just a few days ago. I took something that I own, and I'm giving, not giving details on purpose, something that I own to get repaired, a significant repair, and the service company that was doing the repair said that I could pay him in cash so I wouldn't have to pay the taxes. Of course, first he asked me if I worked for the government. I said, no, I'm a pastor and I'll pay you by check because I don't mind taxes. I happen to love my country. But what happened was the warning light went off. And so what is the conscience? The conscience is a warning light inside of us and it will be tested, ladies and gentlemen. Your conscience will be tested this week in seemingly small matters and in seemingly big matters. For example, when you go to the cashier and the cashier gives you too much change and you get in your car and you look and you've got a few bucks more than you're supposed to have, your conscience comes alive, right? Unless you've sinned against it so much that it's dull and you put the money in the pocket and say, well, it's her mistake, my benefit, and drive away. No. Will you listen to your conscience and humble yourself and go back in and give back the money that doesn't belong to you? Or, you know, when a service company comes to your home and makes a bunch of repairs, 
wants cash underneath the table. Will you follow your conscience and do what's right? Romans 13 says, pay your taxes. Or on Friday, when you really want to have a three-day weekend, but you decide, you know, I think I'm going to call in sick so I can have that three-day weekend. But you're not sick at all. And the company said, you can't use sick time for personal use, only when you're sick. Will you obey your conscience and go to work? Or will you ignore your conscience and take the three-day weekend? I could go on and on and on forever, but how about speeding down I-95 when you're late for work? Or um, if you're a student, copying somebody's homework because you didn't have time to do yours. Or watching an R-rated movie that has nudity, 10, 15, 20 F-bombs in it. Will you listen to your conscience and shut it off? and do the right thing? Or will you ignore your conscience and continue to watch the idiot box? See, you're allowing the world and the flesh and the devil into your home when you decide to do that. And here's what I know, that if we will obey our conscience in the seemingly small matters of life, we'll be more likely to obey our conscience when we're faced with the more consequential issues of life. Like when we're tempted to cheat on our spouse or we're tempted to steal from work or we're tempted uh, to take drugs. Hey, if we haven't ignored our conscience and dulled it, then when we're faced with those big issues, then we have a better chance to rely on the Holy Spirit and say thanks but no thanks. But here's what happens with a lot of Christians. They ignore their conscience. They keep sinning against it, ignoring it. And what happens is that if you ignore your conscience over and over and over again, the Bible teaches that it becomes dull. And for some people, it actually becomes seared so that they don't feel any guilt no matter what sinful thing that they do. By the way, the prison system is filled with people like that. And so do what Martin Luther said. You need to do that. I need to do that. What's that? Don't sin against your conscience. It's neither safe nor right. Now, as we go through chapter eight today, 1 Corinthians, Paul's gonna write about an issue that has to do with the human conscience. Now, it's only 13 verses today, so we're gonna get the whole chapter done. But I just wanna let you know up front that the issue that came up is gonna be very odd or peculiar to us in the 21st century, even though it was very common in the first century. The issue had to do with whether a Christian should eat meat that had been offered to idols. So you say, what? Well, let's check it out. Chapter eight, verse one. If you're looking at verse one, just say amen so I know you're with me. Okay, here we go. Now concerning things offered to, what's the word? Idols. Now, I have to give you the historical background so you understand what's going on here in the scripture. The Romans and the Greeks in the first century, they were polytheistic. That means that they believed in the existence of many gods. Some of the gods that they worshiped were Diana and Castor and Hermes and Zeus. All those, by the way, listed in the book of Acts. And so you remember in Acts chapter 17, when the apostle Paul is walking down that main road there in Athens, you guys remember what he saw lining the streets? 
hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of idols, little figurines carved from wood or chiseled out from a stone, representing all these different Greek and Roman gods. They even had one uh, shrine that was to the unknown God. Paul, of course, took advantage of that to preach Christ on Mars Hill. But as Paul walked in Athens and saw all this polytheistic nonsense, his heart was grieved. The reason it was grieved is because the apostle Paul was a Jew and Jews are monotheistic. Paul believed in the one true God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And by the way, that's the God of the Christians as well. We have a lot to say thank you for to our Jewish friends. Why? Because they gave us this incredible heritage, heritage of understanding who the true God is. Ladies and gentlemen, there's only one God. He's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And thank God, right? We ought to thank God that he revealed himself to us. There is no other God. The Hindu religion has thousands and thousands of God. It's all farce. Some lady told me in between services today how here in Florida, a bunch of Buddhists got together to sacrifice a pig to Buddha. It's, it's, it's a farce. There's one God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And thank God in Genesis chapter 12, in a world that was filled with polytheistic nonsense, that the eternal uncreated God revealed himself to a man called Abraham by grace. And thank God that Abraham passed down that heritage to his sons and his grandson to the entire Jewish race. And they wrote it down in the scriptures. Christianity came, which is based on the Old Testament scriptures. And so we have an incredible heritage. But the Gentiles, the heathen, the pagans are polytheistic. They believe in many gods, little g. And they're also, um, they're also polydemonistic. Polydemonistic. They believe in the existence of many demons. Now, we understand it's true. There's a lot of demons out there. But in the first century, in, in pagan belief, their beliefs about demons were really weird. For example, they believed and taught that demons would attach themselves to your food. I just wanted to share that to you before you go out to lunch today. And so they believed that when you ate your food, that the demon attached to it, you wouldn't just consume your steak at Outback, but you also would consume a demon. And the only way to decontaminate your meat was to offer it to one of the Greek or Roman gods at a pagan temple. That's what they believed. That's what they taught. Now, this whole thing of sacrificing meat to idols, here's how it all went down. I read this week about, you know, some group bringing 100 oxen to Zeus, for example. And so it was prevalent in that day. And so what would happen is you would bring, if you were a pagan, you would bring your animal to the pagan temple of whatever God. And then the pagan priest would meet you. He would slaughter the animal. And then the meat of the animal would be divided into three different parts. Part of the meat would be burned up on an altar to that false God. Another part of the meat would be given to that pagan priest because even pagan priests have to eat. And then the other part was given to the pagan worshiper. 
Now, if the pagan priest did a lot of sacrifices that day, and he didn't need to eat all that meat, he was smart. He understood he could make a profit. And so he took his meat down to the local marketplace to sell it. And so if you lived in the first century, let's say in Corinth, and you went down to the local marketplace and you looked around and saw all the meat, you would know in your mind that a lot of that meat came from the pagan temple. If you guys are with me, just say amen so I know you're, you're getting the background here. And so at this time that all this is going on, Christianity is spreading like wildfire across the Roman Empire, and there's people that are turning from paganism to Christ. They used to offer their meat to some false god at some pagan temple, but now they're sitting in a church like this, and they're worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. But those new believers saved out of pagan, paganism, they also had to eat. So they would go down to the local marketplace to buy some meat. And they'd go up to the meat and they knew, because they knew their culture, that a lot of that meat came from the pagan temple and it had been sacrificed to a false god. And because they were saved out of paganism, and because they were new believers, and because they had not yet been discipled in the word of God, and they still thought there's something to idols, they didn't buy the meat. They thought, you know, stay away, that was sacrificed to Zeus or whatever. And they would think, I've got to find some meat somewhere that has not been sacrificed to a God. And so with that background, again, please look at verse 1. Now, concerning things offered to idols, we, what's the next word? No. What did the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, pride themselves on? Knowledge. And just so you understand, verse 1, 2, and 3, real quick side note, I'm going to revisit it, but there was a group within the church there at Corinth that had really big heads. They were arrogant about what they knew. They did eat meat offered to idols, and they didn't care what anybody thought about it. And Paul addresses them here in verses 1 through 3. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge has puffed some of you up. But love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing. Yet as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, this one is known or recognized by God. So the ancient Greeks pride themselves on this whole thing of knowing more and having knowledge. And Paul wants them to know there's something more important than knowledge. What's that? It's your next point. If you're taking notes here, the primary goal of Christianity is not knowledge. It's love. It's love. It's love and concern for others. So what's a, once again, okay, in the church, let's imagine if this was the church of Corinth and there's a group within the church. They've been saved for a while. They've been in the word. They know there's nothing to idols, but the problem is they allowed their knowledge to make them arrogant and they're becoming know-it-alls. And now they're looking down their noses at another group within the church 
newer believers saved out of paganism that have a conscience issue with eating meat offered to idols. And the know-it-alls are saying to those with this tender, weak conscience, there's nothing wrong with eating meat that's been offered to an idol. An idol's nothing. And so I'm going to continue to go to the public marketplace. I'm going to continue to buy the meat. I'm going to continue to eat meat to idols. And if there is a citywide festival to some God, I'm going to be there with my friends. And I don't care what you think about that. The Apostle Paul gets wind of this, and he's not very happy at the know-it-alls, even though they were right. Okay, they were right, but their attitude was wrong. And Paul says, you, gotta, you guys need to check your attitude because your knowledge has puffed you up, and it's made you insensitive toward others. Check out what David Guzik uh, write, writes here. Some Christians grow, others just swell. You can be right. You can be theologically right. You can have your pet systematic theological position. But be careful because the more theology that you understand, nothing wrong with theology, study of God, it's a good thing. But be careful because you can have the right theological knowledge and you can have the wrong attitude. And you can let, you let your head swell because of your minor theological position and the next thing you know, because you're exalting knowledge over love, you're going around the church and you're trying to get people to follow your minor theological position, even though it contradicts what Calvary's teaching, and even though you're confronted and asked in love not to do that, you continue to do that, and you take your life group away, and the next thing you know, the elders have got to step in. And the elders have to discipline you. And the next thing you know, you're off starting a church somewhere because of your minor theological position. Let me tell you something. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. So you got to be so very careful that when you grow in Christ, you're actually growing. You're not swelling. The problem in Corinth was not a lack of knowledge. The problem in Corinth was a lack of love. Look at verse four here. He says, therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, okay? Paul understood that this group of know-it-alls in the church, they were right, okay? He agrees with them in verse four. We know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. I love that. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, and this, is what, this was the pagan belief seen in Athens as he walked up and down the streets and saw all the hundreds and hundreds of idols. He says, yet, verse 6, for us, there is how many gods? One God. Everybody say, one God. <laughs> Don't mess up on that. That's an essential of the faith, okay? One God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him. And one Lord, everybody say Lord, and please underline it, highlight it, put a star next to it. I'm going to come back to that, so important. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, 
And by the way, the rest of verse six, you can only say this about God, not about a created angel. One Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. Love it. Solid right here. Okay, so the Apostle Paul, of all people, he knew that idols are nothing. They're just little figurines cut out of wood or chiseled out of stone. These little figurines, they have no ability to walk or talk, right, or hear or anything like that. They much less perform a miracle to some pagan who's praying to it. And so Paul knew this better than anybody. Now, we're going to find out, quick side note, that in chapter 10, he is going to teach that there are demons behind these idols masquerading as these false gods. But as far as the idol is concerned, as far as the false Greek or Roman god that it represented, it represented it's all fake. It's all nonsense. There's absolutely nothing to it. So, here's the question for the day. If the existence of many gods is a lie, what's the truth? The truth is, there's one God. Now, some people will read verse 6, and they'll say, yeah, but Pastor Mike, it says one God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't there two gods? <laughs> no, there's not two gods. There's one God eternally existent in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We started this message talking about Martin Luther, who was speaking out against the corruption in, 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 his, in his church. And I, I will admit, there are problems within the Roman Catholic Church. But you know what I love about the Roman Catholic Church? Is that for centuries, they preserved the truth that there is one God, eternally existent in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so that's the God of the Bible. There's hints to the triunity of God in the Old Testament, but through progressive revelation of the New Testament, the Trinity is all over the place, including 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 6. Now, here's my point here. Paul calls Jesus Lord. If you're taking notes, check this, this, this um, next uh, point out on the screen. There is the name of God. Now the Jews respected God so much that when the scribes were writing, copying the scriptures, when they came to this name of God up there on the first line, they'd go take a bath. And then they'd come back and write the name of God. I really wish there was that kind of respect in the church today for God. I really wish there was. I really wish that people would get the fact that Sunday morning is not about you, it's about God and honoring him and worshiping him and coming on time and singing to him and listening to his word with a humble heart and seeing who you can serve in the name of Jesus after the services. I really wish we could get a culture in our church where it's not a consumer culture, what have you done for me lately, but forget me, how can I respect and serve God today? That would be a great day when that happens here. And so God, in Latin, the transliteration of God's name 
is four Latin letters, Y-H-W-H. Of course, we in English added vowels to that, and that's why we call God Yahweh. But that's not my point this morning. My point is the third line. When Paul wrote in chapter 8, verse 6, the Lord Jesus Christ, he uses that Greek term, kurios. And what you got to know is that is the word in the Old Testament for God. This is so important that you get this, okay? I'm not going too deep this morning. We should understand this. The Greek culture, which spread all across the world back before the Roman Empire even even, uh, took power, okay? Even after the Romans beat the Greeks, Greek language and Greek culture still permeated the Roman Empire. And in the second, listen, in the the, um, third and second centuries BC, the common language among the Jews in Israel was Greek and Hebrew. And so the Jews found out that they needed to translate the Bible into the common language. What was the common language? Greek, Koine Greek. And so in the second and third, third and second centuries BC, they translated the Bible from Hebrew to Greek, and it's called the Septuagint. It's the the Bible that the authors of the New Testament used in that day who spoke Greek fluently. The New Testament written in Greek. So here's my point. If you go to the Greek Septuagint, the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible, and you go to Exodus chapter three, verse four, and a bunch of other places, and you look up the word for God, right? When God reveals himself in Exodus chapter three to Moses, that word in Exodus chapter three, verse four, on the top line of your screen, the name for God. When the Greek translators translated the Hebrew Bible into Koine Greek, they translated the name of God on the third line, kurios. And when the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, writes the phrase for Jesus, he uses the same word, kurios, Lord, Jesus Christ. Everybody knew in that day that the Apostle Paul was giving Jesus the same name for God. The same God who revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush is our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why when the, when the, when the Jews heard Jesus say, before Abraham was, I am. What did they do? They picked up stones. Why? because they believed that Jesus was blaspheming. Why? Because he was calling himself God. And so we understand through the progressive revelation of scripture that there is absolutely one God who is eternally existent as a triunity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And by the way, there's hints of this all over the Old Testament. Let me just give you one hint and we're gonna move on today. In Genesis chapter one, in the beginning, The author Moses uses a different word, name for God, Elohim. But here's what's so fascinating. In the beginning, God, he uses the plural form of the name of God. Plural form? I thought there was only one God. There is one God, eternally existent in three 
persons. In the beginning, God, plural name, created the heavens and the earth. And as you read through the Bible, you see that the Father was there at creation. And you see that the Son, the uncreated eternal Son, was there at creation. And you see that the Holy Spirit, Genesis 1-2, the Spirit hovered over the face of the waters, was there at creation. And I could go on and on for hours, but I hope I've wetted your whistle enough so that you can understand the truth of what we believe about God. Look now at verse 7, chapter 8, verse 7. And before I go on, I just got to stop for a second because there's a bunch of nonsense being preached in quote-unquote churches today that Jesus is some kind of created angel. And so can we just stop for one second right here and recognize that Jesus is the uncreated eternal God. And can you guys just let him know with a clap offering and a shout of praise that you recognize that, you believe that, you'll take that belief to your death. He is God. He is God. Verse seven. He says, however, there is not in everyone that knowledge that there's one God. He's pointing to the new believers in the church who haven't been fully discipled yet. And he says, for some with the consciousness of an idol until now eat the meat as a thing offered to an idol. Their conscience being weak is defiled. So the Apostle Paul simply here in verse 7 is recognizing the fact that there was a group in the church, new believers, not yet completely discipled. They came out of paganism. They hear that there's one God, but they still believe there's something to an idol. They still believe in the existence of God's little g, and they think these God's little g are in competition with the one true God. So the idea for them of eating meat that had been offered to one of the gods, little g, is unheard of. They can't do it. Paul says it's because they have a tender or a weak conscience. It had not yet been informed by the truth. Look at verse 8. and We're going to apply this a little bit to our lives. He says, but food does not commend us to God. Okay, do you see that? Food's amoral. <laughs> Eating food or not eating food doesn't make you any more or less spiritual here. Food does not commend us to God. For neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we don't eat are we the worse. And so if those new believers saved out of paganism, by the way, don't you understand we have to be patient with people as they grow in Christ? We have to be loving towards them and, and be very... Aren't parents, aren't you patient towards your little son or daughter when they're afraid of the dark at night and you put them to bed and there they are, that little boy, that little girl, right? And they're like, mommy, would you please keep the door open? I'm afraid of the dark. Moms and dads, I mean, you don't say, suck it up, slam the door. You don't do that, do you? I hope you don't do that. No, you buy them a little Winnie the Pooh nightlight and put it on. You sit there and tell them a Bible story, pray with them. 
I'm right down the hall, honey. You're patient with. God's telling us to be patient with new believers who are growing. Their conscience will become stronger as it's informed by the word of God. And so here's your next point. If you're taking notes, as you grow in Christ, allow God's word to inform and shape your conscience. You know, after a while, if you're 15 and you're still afraid of the dark, and I'm your dad, I will tell you to suck it up. So we have to be growing in Christ. Now, let me try to apply this a little bit, okay, at the risk of offending people. When we grow in our knowledge of the word of God, what we find is that things we thought in the past were wrong aren't wrong. So eating meat offered to an idol, some people thought it was wrong. It really wasn't wrong. Idols are nothing, okay? And it's the same thing with us. My wife and I come from a very um, legalistic church background. And so what we found, you know, first of all, I was, I was raised in the Roman Catholic church. I left that church when I was between 18 and 20 years old. I met Jesus in a very real way. And I went into this fundamentalist type of Christianity for about 10 years. That's where I met my wife. And what I found in those churches, I was new to the Bible. I didn't read, I didn't grow up reading the Bible. And so I was new to the Bible. And what I found in some of these churches that my wife and I would go to during that time of our lives is that there were a lot of man-made rules. And I found that the man-made rules, because my wife and I didn't know any better because we weren't really discipled to where we, sh where we needed to be at that time of our lives, we just kind of accepted what the guy said up front as gospel. And so, for example, some of you guys may laugh at this because you don't come from the same background that I come from, but when the preacher said to the guys, if your hair goes across your collar, that's wrong, go get a haircut, Mike Wiggins went and got a haircut because the preacher said to get a haircut. When I go to Sunday night church and I'm not wearing a tie and the preacher said, you need to have a tie on, young man. The next Sunday, guess what? I put a tie on. And the hair, for some reason, was a big deal in those days. And, and by the way, they, they get it from, from a verse that we're going to tackle later on. It's a shame for a man to have long hair. But I would submit to you, what's long, right? Isn't that kind of a relative thing? And so I remember thinking back in that, that time, okay, you're saying that you can't have hair long in the back, but man, you got some really long hair in the front that you're slicking back with some VO5. <laughs> so if it's wrong to have it long in the back, Maybe you need to cut the front. That's just the way I think, but anyway. We had hair check in Bible college. I don't have time for this. I'll tell you anyway. We had hair check in Bible college. And so what that means is that when you hear hair check, that means the dean is coming down the hallway. And so you had to go outside of your dorm room and you had to put your face against the wall and you had to put your hands like this 
because if you're getting a demerit because you had hair past your collar, you had to be ready to receive the demerit, no questions asked. And I remember I hear, hair check! And my freshman roommate runs into the bathroom and he's cutting off clumps of his hair into the sink. It wasn't a cult, I promise you. It was a good Bible-believing, you know, strong, solid Bible college, but it had a lot of man-made rules. I got a demerit in my hand. I had to go get my hair cut. I'm a college student. I'm broke. So I told my, my roommate, cut the back of my hair. They cut it straight across. I went to the dean. He said, no, it has to be tapered. That's my background. Pray for me. I still have legalism all in my blood. It's all over me. When the preacher said to the women, hey, it's wrong for you women to be wearing them pants. My wife wore a skirt to church. But if you know my wife, you know what a rebel she is. She put her jeans on during the week to go to the mall with me, okay? Now, when she had her jeans on in the mall and she's walking with me, guess what we did when we saw the church people? We hid behind the clothes racks because they didn't, we didn't want them to see my wife in her jeans. Man-made rules on the same level as God's word. When the preacher said, all secular music is of the devil, my wife and I got rid of some really good secular music. I'm not talking about the vile stuff. I'm not talking about stuff that demeans women or has curse words in it. We got rid of all of it. And the only music we ever listened to 100% of the time was like the hymns that we sang in church. Man-made rules. But when my wife and I began to grow in God's word, our consciences were shaped and formed by the word of God. And now all of a sudden, we're finding out there's a difference between what God says and what the preacher says. And so we left that whole scene. I want you to know at this church that you have liberty in Christ. That means if you want to have a hairstyle, have a hairstyle. If you want to have a mullet, have a mullet. <laughs> if you want to wear jeans to church, lady, wear jeans to church. Now, the Bible does talk about modesty. Please be modest. Okay, because sometimes what happens is on the front row, women will come in and, you know, they're, they're not dressed modest. And so when I'm preaching, I've got to preach like this. Okay, so it does say be modest. But if you're modest and you want to wear jeans, wear jeans. My wife has jeans on today, Okay. Your dress style, whatever. Your music, whatever. If you want to go to the beach, whatever. If you want to dance at your wedding, whatever. The preacher told us dancing's wrong. We didn't have dancing at our, my, my wife and I didn't have dancing at our wedding. We missed out on so much fun. Thank God when we married off our first two daughters, we had dancing and we had fun. <laughs> I'm a horrible dancer, but I still have fun. And don't send me emails. We weren't dirty dancing. We were just having fun. If you want to get a tattoo, whatever. Glad one person said amen. Okay. Don't send me an email. Leviticus chapter 19. I've read it. Context, context, context. He's writing 
to the Jews about their relationship with the idolatrous Canaanites, horrible, wicked, vile people, and they had this practice when they mourned for their dead to cut themselves and to mark their bodies. That has nothing to do with the modern practice of tattoos. And I know so many Christians that love the Lord have tattoos. So what? There's freedom in this place. Get beyond the man-made rules. Here's an idea. Put the man-made rules down here. Put God's words up here and just follow God's word. Now, I have to say this in light of all that, in some of the more serious issues like eating meat sacrificed to an idol in the first century or drinking alcohol in our culture, which I'll talk about that in just a second, we have to be careful that our liberty doesn't become a stumbling block for others. Look at verse 9. He says, but beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours, he's talking to the know-it-alls in the church who are flaunting their liberty by eating meat offered to pagans. He says, beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols. And so again, you had these know-it-alls in the church that understood, they knew the truth, that there's nothing to an idol. And so when there was a citywide festival to whatever pagan god, they went to the citywide festival, they sat down with their friends, they ate the meat that had previously been dedicated to Zeus, but they didn't care because they knew Zeus didn't exist, right? But here's the problem. You had some people in the church who are saved out of paganism and they're walking down the street and they see brother so-and-so chomping down on the stake that had been dedicated to Zeus. So what does this guy do that was saved out of paganism? Well, if brother so-and-so can do it, I can do it too. And so he sits down and he begins to cut the meat that had been offered to Zeus and he eats it and all of a sudden, guilt trip, and now he's thinking, oh no, God's mad at me. Okay, he's a new believer. Be patient with new believers. God's mad at me. I can't believe I turned back to paganism. How in the world could I have done this? Guilt, 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 shame, shame, shame. And so when you think about what's happening here, you gotta read verses 11 through 13 as he wraps this up. Look at this. And because of your knowledge, those of you who are eating the meat dedicated to an idol, shall the weak brother perish? And no, he's not talking about eternal damnation. He's talking about harming his relationship with Jesus. So because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus, what's the next word? Sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against who? Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, Paul says, I will never again eat meat, <laughs> lest I make my brother stumble. Here's your almost last point here. Don't allow your liberty to cause others to stumble. Put love and concern for others above your knowledge. 
That's what Paul did. Paul put his love and concern for others above his liberty to do what he wanted to do. He didn't have this egotistical attitude where I don't care what they think, I'm going to do what I want to do. He didn't have that attitude. And so don't allow your liberty to cause others to stumble. I'm going to begin to wrap this up. Here's your final um, verse today in Romans. Paul says, it is good neither to eat meat nor, and please help me out with the next two words. Okay, crystal clear here. We're not talking about some, you know, man-made rule that someone conjured up. We're, we're looking at God's word right here. It's, it is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Paul says, don't drink the beer or the glass of wine if it causes your brother or sister to stumble. Now, personally, I don't drink. I don't drink publicly. I don't drink privately. My wife doesn't drink. My wife's father died in his 40s as an alcoholic. He went down to about 60 or 70 pounds. He drank himself to death. My wife stays away from it because she has told me before, if I take one drink, I may really like it, Mike, and I don't want to take the one drink. So that's what she has decided to do based on the heartache of her past. I don't drink, not because I think having a glass of wine is a sin. I don't drink because I don't need it. Right? I don't need alcohol to take the edge off at the end of the day or to make me happy. I have the Holy Spirit living inside of me. Right? He gives me a peace that surpasses all understanding and joy unspeakable and full of glory. And the joy and the happiness that the Holy Spirit gives me is so much better than some bottle of wine could ever give me. And I don't have the hangover the next morning. Another reason I don't drink is because I don't want to make my brother stumble. Can you imagine if somebody in this church stood up to receive Jesus Christ and they have a past of alcohol abuse? And they stand up and receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. The Holy Spirit comes in and the Holy Spirit delivers them from alcohol. And now they're, but it's hard, right? And so now they've got one week, two weeks, three weeks, two months, three months, four months of being clean and sober. And one day they walk into Chili's and there's Pastor Mike sitting at the bar throwing down a beer. What's going to happen to this guy? He's going to be stumbled. And he's going to think, well, if Pastor Mike can have a, a beer or a glass of wine or a martini, then I can too. And so he drinks. And you know better than I do that he can't stop at one drink. He has to keep drinking until he's passed out. And now his relationship with the Lord is harmed. Now his relationship with his wife and his kids is harmed. Why? Because I decided that I'm going to flaunt my liberty at the expense of others. No, absolutely not. And so, hey, if it's, it's good either to eat meat nor drink wine or do anything by which your brother will stumble or is offended or may be made weak. And you might say, but Pastor Mike, I know 
that there's nothing wrong with having a drink from time to time. Well, let me point you back to verse 11. Because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? If the Lord has given you the liberty to have a glass of wine from time to time, maybe you could do that in your home, the privacy of your home, so you don't cause others to stumble. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com and click on Knowing Christ.